Hello and welcome to Where Am I To Go podcast. Today we are in Missoula, Montana. We are at the Rocky Mountain Military Museum, Military History Museum. And uh, we are here with Tate. Tate's going to take us through this museum. Uh, Missoula's a neat little town, kind of sits in the valley of what, five different mountains? A hub of five valleys. Hive of okay, it. yeah, <laughs> and uh, it's a beautiful place right off of Interstate 90. This museum is pretty easy to find. GPS sent us directly here, and Tate said that he'd take a, a bit of time this morning to take us through. And just having walked through while he uh, opened up this morning, I can tell you there is a lot of stuff to see. There is a lot of history here. So welcome to where am I to go, Tate? Tell us Thank a little you. bit about the history of your museum. Oh, we are in the building that was the headquarters for the Civilian Conservation Corps in Montana in 1936. Then just briefly tell us a little bit about the CCCs. Oh, okay. That was an FDR program to get kids off the streets in the Depression where they were causing trouble and out to the national forests and national parks where they'd get some good food in them and be able to do some uh, good public work on places like Glacier National Park, Lolo National Forest. And this building was headquarters for the Montana district of the CCC, and ultimately 25,000 corpsmen were processed through the building that is now the main museum building here. Wow, that's a lot of people. Yeah. <laughs> And they did a lot of work. The CCC was a program that was established by FDR uh, to kind of help families get out of the Depression and to get the economy moving. Isn't that correct? Or... Uh, yes, very much so. Most <laughs> visible thing in western Montana, you go over Logan Pass and in Glacier National Park, those stone guardrails were built by the CCC. Okay. Sounds good. And how long did the CCC program run? Uh, 1932 through uh, 1941, after Pearl Harbor, the priority was getting young men into uniform and off to the front rather than working on the national parks and forests. So priorities changed, 1941. Okay. And this this is on the site of Old Fort Missoula, is that correct? Yes. Uh, this whole, oh, I guess roughly five to six blocks complex we're on is Fort, is Fort Missoula, generally, and five to six uh, square, uh, large square blocks. And Fort Missoula has been here since 1877. Okay, and is it still owned by the military or just? Uh, a variety of public and private agencies now, but there's still a, a National Guard vehicle maintenance shop in back of us here at the, at the military museum. Okay, and was it still a military base after the CCCs? Did they use it as a World War I, World War II uh, base of some sorts or another? Um, last active infantry unit was the 4th Infantry, which was the parent organization of the CCC. Okay. They're deployed to Alaska in 1941. Then Fort Missoula becomes the alien detention center for Italian nationals who are interned. So, in other Pearl words, Harbor. it was a World War II uh, uh, internment camp. Internment camp. Yes, and also for Japanese, some Japanese nationals 
from the West Coast who are oh, here really? in briefer time, but primarily Italians here. So it was a relocation camp for the Ch Japanese also? For Japanese nationals, yes. I did not... Re th this is th this ties Certainly. into some other podcasts oh, we did. We're from yeah. Wyoming, oh, and Heart Mountain, uh, Heart Mountain right. was big there. Yeah. Uh, they had CC uh, camps all over Wyoming too, but but the Heart Mountain relocation uh, podcast that we did covers that in great detail. But we've also hit, and I did. Well, I wasn't even aware of this till just uh, probably five years ago that we actually had German and Italian POWs mm. on American soil. But since that time, we've hit several. Uh, POW camps. There was one in Wyoming in Douglas. There was one in Salina, Utah. There was one in uh, Fort Stanton, New Mexico. There was one in uh, uh, Arizona, in Phoenix, Arizona. And those are the ones I can think of right off the top of my head. And so they were, they were everywhere, kind yeah. of. We weren't a POW camp. We were for civilian internees here. Okay, this now camp, explain the difference. Uh, this camp was uh, not military one. It was run by the Department of Justice, and the Border Patrol provided the security. The internees were Italians who had been working at the World's Fair or were in ports in U.S. harbors, and they were detained before Pearl Harbor. Uh, they were uh, the Coast Guard and uh, Navy simply swooped them up and brought them here to what was at that point an empty fort with the infrastructure to hold them. The Japanese nationals, uh, that was part of the West Coast story, the post Pearl Harbor right. internment. But they, they were, um, it was adult, adult men who were brought here um, for a, br a briefer period of time, about five months. So they were thinking that these Italian. They were Italian nationals. Sa they weren't. They weren't uh... sailors and workers. Yeah. Okay. So they were afraid that they were going to rise up, like what they were afraid that the Japanese were going to rise up. Is I it... I suspect a major part of it was the British uh, didn't want to be fighting these fellows in North Africa. They were military reservists for the most part, and so they asked FDR to do them a favor and swoop them up here and uh, keep them incarcerated. I have never heard this part of the history. This yeah. is this is really intriguing. I. Uh, I'm going to have to look into this quite a bit more because Certainly. That's, uh, I, I knew that they had relocated the Japanese. I didn't realize that they had an Italian roundup also yes. and relocated ones that were already here in the U.S., even if they weren't citizens. Correct. Yeah, We've got several preserved buildings of the fort that tell the story of this. Wow. Was this high security also, or was it uh, kind of minimal security? Interesting story. Uh, when they get here, the Border Patrol's out in full force. They have guard towers, barbed wire, and all that for the, um, for the Italian side. After about a year, uh, the security demand lessens, and they're allowed to go out and work in the national forests and downtown at the Florence Hotel and just on the sugar beet industry here and all that. And... Uh, Several uh, stayed in the U.S. after internment and re remained here. In A few remained here in Missoula. We had one fellow who went on to work for the University of Montana as an administrator for the next several decades. And we had one fellow, Alfredo Cipollato, who stayed here, raised his family, and ran a deli down on Broadway, here, broad, corner of Broadway Avenue here for the next half century after he was brought here. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. I love learning new history, and, and some of this stuff is just so intriguing to me. Okay, so that's what this building was used for, and now it's used okay. as a museum. Yeah, this building during the internment period was the post-engineer's office, but the heyday of its use came 
in the 1930s as CCC headquarters. After okay. World War II, it became a, a National Guard battalion headquarters. And it, it kind of looks like what you would expect uh, a 1930s, 1940s barracks yeah. or whatever to look like. It's just a long building that's, what, probably 35 foot wide, 36 Certainly. foot wide, yeah. and, and uh, 150 foot long or something. Yeah, I've heard it described as, uh, as Cape Cod construction or Kentucky horse country style. Okay. So. Yeah, all single level, and, yeah. and yeah. this is cool. So let's start taking a look at your museum and sure. some of the displays you've got. It looks like you cover, from my little walk around here, looks like you cover stuff from Civil War, Indian Wars, World War I, II, Vietnam, kind of everything. Well, since we're the only one of our kind for a very large region, we go all the way back to the Revolution. Oh, do you? <laughs> so and to. how big of a region are you the only one? Oh, pretty much uh, western Montana, northern, northern Idaho, um, pretty much all the way, all the way down to... Uh, the Yellowstone Park region. <laughs> okay. Area. Yeah. Yeah. They just opened a big military so. museum in uh, Dubois, Wyoming. I've heard. Oh, I'm it's awesome. To get, plan to I, get down when I can. <laughs> I would plan to get down there. They have some really neat things, but uh, we haven't had an opportunity to do a podcast there. But I did go through the museum, and they say it's the largest collection of uh, military vehicles in the nation. Yeah. Cut the fan there. We're good. We're good. Anyway, so, okay, so you've got displays coming all the way from the Revolutionary War. Yes, we have a very local Sons of the American Revolution chapter that helps us out with that. Well, that's cool. Okay, so where would you like to start? Oh, why don't I show you our two uh, Keystone exhibits, okay. if you can. I like Keystones. Certainly. <laughs> this is a Pennsylvania fellow, huh? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> well, this is the uh, model of the USS Missoula. Okay. An attack transport from World War II, and the job of this ship was to transport Marines to the invasions of the Pacific Islands during World War II. Okay. Here's Missoula's connection with the Battle of Iwo Jima in 1945. The uh, USS Missoula was present for the invasion February 1945. Everyone knows the story of the Marine Corps flag raising over right. Iwo Jima. Okay. And that well, we'll just briefly hit that. That's the one where the where the Marines there's yeah. like five or six Marines pushing the flag yeah. up. And yeah, the, it's sh immortalized in the Arlington, Virginia Memorial today. The okay, large, large one. Okay, well, if everyone's familiar with that picture taken by the Associated Press, Joe Rosenthal, before that, there was a first flag raising with a smaller flag, and that flag came from the USS Missoula. And it was on Iwo Jima. Yeah, correct. Wow. And one of the Marines on the USS Missoula, who was part of the first flag-raising party, was PFC Louis Charlot. We have a uh, Charlot, Montana today. Chief Charlo in the 19th century he was a famous local chief of the Salish tribe. Uh, this was... This was his great-grandson right here. Okay. He was part of the flag-raising party of the fir for the first flag, and he was killed on Iwo Jima a couple of weeks later. Really? Yeah. Now, was Charlo named after his grandfather? Yes, named yes. And Charlo's up by St. Ignatius and Ronan. Yeah, right. It's a very uh, Just north long, of here. long-standing Salish family on the, on the Flathead Reservation north of here. Right. Okay. So. Wow. Okay, so... And it's cool that you guys had a ship named after you. 
um, us and about 250 other communities across the... Are there really that many Missoulas? <laughs> uh, no, no uh, other communities. It was an attack transport. It was basically a, a liberty ship, and they churned these out like popcorn during the war very okay. fast. So uh, the Navy needed about 200-some of these, and they needed uh, 200 communities across the country to oh, name okay. them after. So, I get what you're yeah, saying. Certainly. I didn't realize that's how they, how yeah. they did that. No, no, that's the same. So we were talking about Pennsylvania a second ago. All the way from Phoenixville, Pennsylvania, we have our Civil War cannon right here. This is a U.S. Ordnance gun produced 1863, a few months after Gettysburg, in Phoenixville, Pennsylvania. Phoenixville okay. Ironworks. Fun fact, Phoenixville, uh, Pennsylvania, is also where they filmed the Steve McQueen science fiction movie, The Blob. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. <laughs> Okay. And this when, is an original cannon? Yes. And this was the most advanced uh, piece of artillery used by the Union Army during, during the war. This particular piece went from Phoenixville and it was bought by the New Jersey uh, State Militia. It went to Trenton, New Jersey, did home guard duty in New Jersey for the balance of the war, stayed in the New Jersey Militia warehouses until the 1900s, and then deaccessed and it was sent to a place called Bannerman's Warehouse in New York State. Okay. Bannerman's uh, was a surplus firm that uh, essentially took care of disposing of all the leftover stuff from the Civil War all the way up to the 1950s. Oh really? Okay. Well, we have a place called Pompey's Pillar in eastern Montana. It's a Lewis and Clark right, site. Right, right. Okay, so the um, in the night, it's a private site in the 1950s. It's owned by a family named Foote out of Billings, Montana. They want to build a frontier town at the base of Pompey's Pillar. They call Bannerman's Warehouse. They get this cannon shipped out to Pompey's Pillar. It's there for the next 60 years. Pompey's Pillar then gets transferred to the Bureau of Land Management. They uh, decide they want to do straight Lewis and Clark story. They call up the uh, Museums Association of Montana and uh, say, we have a number of things we'd like to uh, pass out, including a cannon. Anybody want a cannon? I'm on, I'm, on the, I'm on the board of the Museums Association of Montana. It was up for about three seconds before uh -huh. I... <laughs> Yeah, we know somebody wants a cannon. So we uh, went to Billings, uh, went um, Pompey's Pillar, picked it up, uh, took it to a professional restorer, got it back to its 1863 appearance. Uh, put it out on the lawn for a while, fired it four times, and then with the help of 25 National Guardsmen, we disassembled it and moved it uh, here and reassembled it. This thing is heavy to move and heavy. Oh, I'll <laughs> bet. So. And you can't get it through the door very easy. No, we had to take the whole thing <clears throat> apart. took us about 20, 25 guys to uh, get this You should have put a garage it. door in there so you could have wheeled it out and shot it another four times because that would have been the, the, the big attraction to me is letting this thing loose every once in a while. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> well, we've uh, actually got a board member who has access to... Uh, pieces like this who brings them down occasionally. Oh, for, uh, <laughs> well, that's, that's cool. And this display, you've got the cannon, you've got the, uh, the barrel swabs here, you've got a Union soldier uh, mannequin standing here all decked out in his Union Artillery. attire. Yeah. And, and then you've got a Confederate suit sitting right here next to it, too. Yes, that's right. We so, tried to bring a little bit of the Civil War to Montana. Montana was essentially born during the Civil War. Right. Uh, in 1863, uh, President Lincoln uh, wanted to lace up 
wanted to admit more uh, territories as free territories, so he quit. He basically uh, found three guys on the streets of D.C. and, de and declared the Montanans and uh, <laughs> said, okay. you're, not, you're now the territorial government of Montana. You need to send a delegate to the 1864 Republican Convention to vote for me. So they said fine. And <laughs> really? There, there you go. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting story that I haven't heard, yeah. too. Yeah. A little bit more involved. They they had Montana connections, but it was pretty much an initiative of the Lincoln administration to get Montana admitted as a territory. Okay. Interesting. So okay. Well, we've got a section here on Montanans in battle, and we have one of Fort Missoula's own here, uh, Brigadier General Walter M. Johnson, a West Pointer who came out here in the 1920s. And he was stationed here at the fort with the CCC and did some of the landscaping around the fort. And he uh, met his wife in Missoula. Funny story, her name was Virginia Weisel. Their family ran a dude ranch up uh, Swan Valley here. Okay. So um, they had to elope because uh, at the time their family didn't consider an army officer, even a West Point, quite up to local standards. <laughs> So they went to Superior, Montana, west of here, uh -huh. got, uh, got married, and then he brought her back here. Unfortunately, that night he was on duty, uh, his their honeymoon night, but he uh, was very resourceful. He said, uh, Mrs. Johnson, we have a nice guardhouse here at the, at the fort. I'm going to set you up there. The sergeant will get you a cot and everything you need. I'm on duty, and I'll see you in the morning. <laughs> so that was uh, how they... Uh, Start, started uh, their, their wedded, wedded life. And um, Johnson went on to become a colonel during World War II, play, uh, commanded the 117th Infantry Regiment during the uh, Mortain campaign in France in World War II, and then went on to become a military governor of Okinawa and uh, came back here to retire here in Missoula. Wow. His, his daughter is now on the... Uh, is a, a, a former WAC herself is on the board of the military museum here today. Okay, and WAC is women's when, women's Army Corps. Women's Army Corps, yeah. right? So, and now this is his actual uniform and, yes. and his actual artifacts. There's uh, there's a couple of uh, hats in here, dress hats. Yes. There's a picture of him with. Uh, I'm assuming that's a paratroopers. Yes. Uh, uh, outfit yeah. and a couple of other uh, in the field pictures. And nice display. Oh, certainly. So we've uh, <clears throat> got more on the uh, fort in the 1930s here. You see by the photographs here, it was a very bustling place during the, during the Depression period. And you've got a cot with, with several different uh, gas masks and, and bags. And now I see that you have the U.S. Army dog sled. So yes. did they have a dog corps also? Um, yes, for use in Alaska, cold weather regions during World War II, up on the Continental Divide here, we had a place called Camp Rimini, which was devoted during World War II. Which and was that would have been just outside of Butte? Um, Helena. Outside of Helena, general, okay. Just, but up on, the, up on the Divide, and their uh, full-time job was training uh, Army sled dogs and Army sled dog handlers. Really? Yeah, Camp Rimini. That's cool. Uh, yeah. I never really, I guess, I mean, the military has little bits of everything from their uh, horse course to all of that, but I guess I've never really thought Certainly. much about the dog corps. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a lot of activity in Alaska and Canada, Alaska Highway and the Aleutians campaign, so there was a big demand for uh, 
cold weather specialists during World War II in the U.S. military. <laughs> well, and, and a lot of Europe's snowy and stuff too, isn't it? Yes. Did they that, use the, the dogs over um, there also? or Not that I've heard of, but uh, the story there is the 10th Mountain Division, which we have a case on back there, uh, was specially trained for mountain warfare beginning in 1943. They get to Italy. Uh, 1942, they get to Italy in late 44, early 45, and they are very active during the last stage of the Italian campaign, which got into mountainous territory. And okay. it was a full division of men. Uh, they recruited especially amongst uh, skiers, uh, cold weather people, and right. specialists and all that. And uh, the local connection here is a lot of these fellows came back to the States after the war and essentially started the ski industry in the western U.S., Oh, so. okay. That's pretty cool. So, well, we've got a naval display right here. A number of uh, PT boat models. Uh, pretty much uh, most people, uh, maybe uh, not as many younger ones as should be, are familiar with the story of President John F. Kennedy in PT-109. Right, he right. President Kennedy commanded a small PT boat, which was a small patrol patrol boat, basically during World War II. And President Kennedy's uh, boat, PT-109, was cut in two by a Japanese destroyer uh, off in action off the Solomon Islands. And uh, he became famous for saving the majority of his crew and getting them to safety afterwards. Well, um, PT-109, prior to Kennedy taking it over, was commanded by a Missoula man. Oh, really? Jack Kemp Kempner. And uh, he had the boat, and then he transferred it to Kennedy and went on to other jobs. But for the rest of his life, uh, Mr. Kempner joked that he'd taken better care of government property than President Kennedy had. Uh, and probably rightfully so. so. <laughs> That's interesting. So, and that display has several little model boats and a couple of PT boats and, yes. and pictures. And again, a sailor in an outfit and a communications uh, box. That's, that's kind of interesting. It's got kind of a closed uh, line uh, effect for the antenna. Yeah, portable yeah. communications array for circuit. It kind of folds it out like, a, yeah, like, like an, an umbrella. umbrella. Yep. Yeah. Right. So oh, we've wow. got our, our armaments room uh, right here. We have representative pieces from the uh, colonial era forward. You kind of get... Uh, oh, yeah. A condensed version of what you'll see at Springfield Armory in Springfield, Massachusetts here. The development of the American military weaponry from uh, muzzle-loading rifles and muskets all the way to uh, the present day. And we go, we start off at flintlocks, end up in percussion, then we end up in bolt action, yeah. and then come into semi-automatics. And when, when were they first starting to use the semi-automatics? Uh, 1942, 45? Um... Because they, they had a lot of bolt action in World War One, but I'm not sure if they were bringing in the automatic weapons then or not. Uh, I've got my chart from Springfield Armory somewhere. I think you could use clips in World War One. Okay. For the first time. Spanish-American War, from what I recall, is the last uh, single shot. <laughs> and then you've War. also got all of the, the... You've got Japanese weapons here. Yes. Again, you've got a percussion Japanese rifle that has a really interesting hammer on it. A replica, yeah. Oh, that's a replica. Okay. Period. And then you've got some German uh, firearms. Yes. And then you have a nice uh, sword collection in here also. 
Oh yes, uh, edged weapons as as well. And bayonets. The, the, the Mauser on the platform over there that was recovered by a, a Montana GI. And brought back home from Stuttgart. These had uh, essentially been thrown out the back of the truck in the last days of 1945, in the hope that uh, German civilians would pick them up and use them against uh, U.S. forces. Okay, that's an interesting fact. Also, I wonder how many how many weapons were sent home that probably weren't supposed to be. But uh... <laughs> uh, judging by my experience, it gun shows over the years, uh, you could get away with a lot in 1945, not so much today. That's kind of what, I, what so. I've heard. So We've got a helicopter here, Oh yeah, a Huey UH-1H that was used in Vietnam. This, okay. one, this one was in Vietnam 1967 through 70 and uh, brought back through uh, TACCOM and um, it's here through U.S. Army Tank and Automotive Command. Okay. And it's um, was taken to Fort Rucker, Alabama, training helicopter for about uh, 30 years, and then before it's made its way out here. This shows how everybody finds you on the internet these days. The uh, pilot who had this in Vietnam for a period of time, uh, uh, Ricky Geronis, uh, found us on the internet that we had a ship and he came out here a few years back, visited and was pleased with what we did, so he left us his Vietnam gear. And it's <laughs> right got there. his his flight jacket, his flight helmet with the yeah. microphone in front, yeah. uh, replica or model, I guess, of, of his craft and, and his flight suit. This is really nice too. So this this machine actually saw combat. And what was it? It was a medical transport or a troop transport or gunship or uh, transport and uh, and ground support. Okay, as, as well. Yeah. Wow, that's pretty cool that he was able to find his ship and, and you know I mean it seems like there were so many of them. No, a lot of them didn't come back too. The, but the internet will take you anywhere these days. <laughs> I guess that's true. <laughs> so. Okay. So again, I mentioned we. Uh, delve into the revolution just a little bit. We've got a couple of uniform donations. One are, this is a reenactor's uniform from the second Connecticut from uh, Mr. Lockhart, who's unfortunately is deceased uh, this year. And uh, local man, uh, Warren Dite Little, uh, put this uh, Continental together as a memorial to his uh, antecedents who were in the, Reb in the, in the New Jersey militia okay. dur during the war. Uh, fun fact, westernmost battle of the Revolutionary War is fought in St. Louis, Missouri. What? May 26, 1780. Uh, British uh, frontier scouts basically put together a force of uh, Lakota Indians and uh, use them to attack the Spanish uh, settlement, combined uh, Spanish-French settlement at St. Louis, Missouri. Really? Okay, because that's way by, be, further west than I would have ever even imagined. Be, because by that point, uh, France and Spain are fighting on the uh, on the American side. Sp Spain is the colonial authority in the time, but there's right. a lot of French settlers in St. Louis. So the uh, Franco-Spanish build a very large blockhouse. Right, here. there's basically, a picture here. Basically, it looks like a medieval castle tower. And the uh, British Indian force hurls himself against this for a day, and then uh, then gives up and gives up on the attack and uh, heads back north. But uh, 
They also attacked east of the Mississippi into what is now western Illinois today. But at that point, uh, George Rogers Clark and Virginia militia show up and uh, they tangle with the British slightly on the east side of the Mississippi American troops. And uh, that ends that particular British initiative and that's, they retreat north and that's the end of the Battle of St. Louis, pretty much. I I had no idea that the revolution, I thought that was just an east coast deal pretty much. No, and, no. George Rogers Clark is very active with Virginia militia in seizing uh, parts of Illinois and Indiana during during the war. And okay, the, no. Brit- the British are in Detroit, so the idea is to keep is to interpose yourself between Detroit and where the big area of American settlement at the time is in Kentucky. Okay. So. The thing that amazes me and I've thought about it a lot is movements. I mean, you know, you have troops on the East Coast but you're a thousand miles or better inland by the time you hit St. Louis, Certainly. and trying to supply that distance, and it had to have taken what twelve, fourteen days, maybe even yeah. two, three weeks, to be able to get from point A to point yeah. B, and to be able to supply. Well, it's light light infantry. They're living off the land for the most part. They are toting supply wagons around with them. With them. But still, they're yeah. having to walk that far. Yes, I'm not ready correct. to go take a thousand-mile walk. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Especially in, you know, wintertime. And, uh, you look at, like, the early, or, or the wars that happened around here, Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, the Indian Wars yeah. and, and different things that happened. Some of those guys were, some of, well, like the Fetterman battle was the day before Christmas. And uh, one of the guys, uh, Portuguese Phillips, he went from that battlefield to Cheyenne on foot in two days. And Mm. you're going, how in the world does a man accomplish something like that? But they did it all the time back in those times. Notice when you look at pictures of people who lived on the frontier in the 18th and 19th century, they're in really good shape. <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they don't have that belly like, no, we, like no, we have? No, no, <laughs> no time for that. <laughs> okay. So uh, here's a, another indication of you never know what's going to come through the door. This trunk came into us one day from a garage in Columbia Falls, Montana. I saw the stenciling on it and a bell went off in my head. This is somebody uh, um, so, who's uh, somewhat notable. So I looked it up. This is the trunk of um, Major General Merritt Red Edson, U.S. Marine Corps. Okay. Red Edson was serving in China in the 1930s as a junior officer. He used this trunk to bring his stuff back from China. He went on to command a Marine Raider Battalion on Guadalcanal. Oh, really? And he was awarded the Medal of Honor for action on, on Guadalcanal. And he... Um, Retired as Major General, U.S. U.S. Marines, and was very prominent uh, throughout the Marine Corps history in the 30s, 40s, and into the 50s. And you've got a lot of patches in this display. And, yes. Uh, uh, veter- veterans come in and they say, "My patch isn't on the wall there," and I say, "Send it. We're happy to put it up." So this is what that's cool. Several years of. Uh, having people send stuff in. This is what we've got. Then you've got a barracks bunk here. Junk on the bunk, we call it. Uh, that, comp- that, that would be a good name for a, it. A composite of uh, U.S. Army equipment from the 1940s all the way up to the present day here. And we've got canteens, we've got helmets, we've got uh, field hats, we've got 
uh, leggings and are those rations or yeah those are some of the canned rations mm -hmm. uh sea rations are those sea rations yes, in the box correct. okay i'm doing all right then yes uh several different uh bags yeah uh a water water bag yeah. uh set of boots and then you've got a helmet up here that uh, doesn't look like it's in super good shape i don't think i'd have wanted no, my head no this in that was one. one of our earliest acquisitions uh general bo foster our founding president uh, saw to this this was a helmet recovered from the battle the monte casino battlefield in italy uh Jan january may 1944 that was a very prominent monastery blocking the road to Rome on a big hill, and it took the Allies about five months to clear it out of the way and uh, get, the, get on the road to Rome. <laughs> wow. So. And it's got, it's got holes all through yes, it. It's, yes. Uh, I don't think the head did real well. No, no, unless it was, uh, had been discarded and was just right. otherwise. So. Okay. Yep, don't know. Don't know. <laughs> and this uh, kind of brings us back on around uh, our Civil sure. War cannon. Sure, yes. And yes. some of our Civil and, uh, War attire. You've got several Civil War hats in, in this display. Yes. And, uh, okay, I'm seeing this game right here. Uh, was that a Civil War game? Yes. Um, the game that I'm referring to is the one that everybody's seen at their grandpa's house or on the pic or on the table at the restaurant that has uh, the holes with the pegs on top, and you got to jump the yeah. the pegs in order to end up with the one left. Yeah. There's a mar variant with marbles too. Chinese checkers, okay. I think yeah. it's called. Yeah. yeah. And this one has uh, horseshoe nails as its yes. More primitive, as its play piece. More primitive version. Yeah. Huh. So. That's kind of cool. I didn't realize that game was that old. I oh, knew my grandma had it, but sure. Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of hours in camp. You had to do something. Okay. Which way do we go now? Okay. Now this this is divided out into several different rooms. And so sure. we've got lots of different displays to go look at and then we cover both World War One and World War Two under a single title here, the World Conflict nineteen fourteen through nineteen forty five. Okay. And we just inaugurated a new feature this week. This was formerly at the Montana Historical Society. It's a rack of cards. You pick a card, it has some biographical information on a Montanan who served in World War I. You can uh, take it with you, look through the exhibit, find, uh, find where they are in the exhibit. Uh -huh. and we try to provide a little context there and uh, find out what event they were involved in. And then we've got a book where you can uh, then flip it open and see what their eventual fate in World War I was. So this is a new feature we'll just put it bring, oh, bring, bringing online this week. That's kind of a nice interactive deal. We make our visitors work a little bit, yes. Well, that's good. <laughs> so. that, that you, you seem to learn a lot more when you're having to put a little bit of effort into yes. it instead of just walking through and looking certainly certainly that is cool and so are, are these a lot of these didn't make it back home i take it if you, um, it's you a, say that you find out what their fate was in yeah the end. some didn't it's a mixture of montana civilians montana soldiers in world war one we cover okay. both the home front and the overseas here in this, oh. ex, in this exhibit okay so and we start out uh, our exhibit with a story of a local man uh, Clarence Street. Street uh, went to high school here in, in, in circa 1910. His, okay. fam his family moved here. He went to Missoula County High School at the time. 
He enlisted for the war, 1917, and he goes to Europe and he's a railway soldier with the American Expeditionary Force helping run the supply railways um, to the Western Front. Okay, now they built railroads to supply? Well, um, so, some. Uh, mainly they used the existing French system, but they, they had to overburden the French system with supply trains, so the Americans provided railway soldiers to help out with that. Really? Yes. Yes. I did not know that that was part of the of the yeah. infrastructure that oh, I, sure. I mean I've seen the portable bridges and and some of that type of stuff, but I had no idea that they were also maintaining and building railways. Oh, it was an immense undertaking. Wow. This, this is the biggest U.S. logistical <laughs> effort ever so, to date. So wow, that's cool. So anyway, uh, Clarence, uh, bright fellow, he gets picked up by General Pershing's staff. He works as an intelligence. An analyst for General Pershing, and then he gets picked up as an aide, a junior aide at the Versailles Peace Conference. So oh, really? he, he's there for all that. He comes home, goes to work for the New York Times as a journalist. He covers the League of Nations in uh, in Geneva okay. and interwar events in the 1920s and 30s. And then World War II breaks out, and he is in Washington. And he starts the Atlantic Council, which is a lobbying group encouraging a greater cooperation between the U.S. and international organizations. And the ideas that they put out uh, kind of find fuller form in NATO and the United Nations. I was just going to so ask forth. if it kind of. So he does that for the rest of his life, uh, and eventually his the Atlantic Council becomes the uh, Atlantic Union. I'm sorry, Atlantic Union Committee. And then uh, that becomes the Strike Council, and it, 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 there's a Strike uh, th uh, think tank, small think tank named after Strike today in Washington, D.C. But he was coming back to Missoula as late as the 1980s, and his life uh, kind of offers an interesting uh, thread of uh, 20th century events and how they happened one, ha impacted one local man here in Missoula. Huh. Wow. I had no idea Missoula had this much history. I used to work, I, I used to. Uh, stay in St. Ignatius. I worked mm -hmm. on a project there, then I worked on a project here in Missoula. Mm -hmm. So I was down here all the time, but I had no idea of some of this mm -hmm. history. Yeah, <laughs> the university brings in a lot of people. Oh, uh, yeah. to punch above our weight. <laughs> so, well, in the, in the exhibit here, we cover uh, the 1914 to 45 story. Um, along along the wall here, principal events and uh, and, and it goes all the way interest. down this forty wraps, foot wall. Wraps, wraps around, and even goes on around. Fact, we've got for World War One cases for uh, cases on the principal combatants, Germany, France, and you've got artifacts from the German yes. uh, uh, ammo carriers up for the belt, the helmet, a couple of the plane models, yeah. uh, some of the medals. And this this uh, timeline that you've got, he's got uh, uh, articles out of different magazines, uh, different costume or not costuming, but different uniforms, uh, maps. Uh, all of it's laminated, easy to read, and it starts at 1914, 15, 16, and and each one of these posters or, or areas is probably eight foot by four foot. That's full of of different pictures and, and diagrams. And then this was your uh, French yes, display. Yes, French and, case. In the French case, he's got an uh, uh, ammo belt. Uh, what in the world is that? That's the the, the helmet used by French The forces. helmet, but this, this wrap thing, it, it says uh, Pan-Semence. Pan 
Oh, it's a medical. I was going to say something, something yeah. medical. I can't, I'm not very good at reading French, so, so I'm not very you're, good you're, with English. You're not alone. You're not alone. <laughs> uh, British uh, case right here. We've got a replica of a trench at Gallipoli, right okay. there. Okay, and, and uh, we've got a hand grenade, a cup, a set of uh, horse stirrups, and again a helmet, a pick shovel. Just uh, a lot of things there. And then the next one has... American Expeditionary Force. Oh, this Force. is the U.S., okay. Yes. <laughs> and in there we've got... Are those brass knuckles? Um, that is that really is a, interesting yeah. piece. We've got, yeah. a, we've got a handle that looks like a, handle, a pull handle, yeah. like for a barn door. Mm -hmm. And then it's got notches in the front yeah. that wrap, wrap around your knuckles to where mm -hmm. it's not like your normal little set of brass knuckles. The knuckle pieces are no. two inches so. wide and would cover your whole fist. Last ditch trench, uh, <laughs> trench uh, weapon. Wow. Yeah. And again, there's some knives uh, and mess kit, canteen, helmet. Flare gun, little Bible, I'm assuming. Yep, and we've uh, got little a little pocket Bible. Decorated helmet right here from the Illinois National Guard Division. Okay. Uh, 80, 86 Division, the Black Hawk Division. And this was World War One. Yes. This and was, were they allowed to decorate their helmets and some of if that? You, if you see a helmet decorated like that, that one made it to Europe and back. Okay. I'm certain. Yeah. Wow. So, and more of our World War One collection right here, and you see various uh, breakouts on the home front. Here's where we have our little, our small cards, which tell the stories of uh, Montanans in, okay. in the war, home And front. now all these uniforms are different countries, correct? No, these are all American Expeditionary are, Force. Okay, right even here. like the helmet here that looks like no, a no, French that helmet? No, no, that is a German, oh, that's uh, a German. That German Pickelhaub early war helmet okay. right there, replaced by the Stahlhelm right there which is the coal scuttle helmet which we're more familiar with from world okay. war ii that makes its appearance uh, a little later on in the war okay and now he's got a, a board down here that says influenza spread by droplets sprayed from nose and throat mm. now is this the 1918 flu because it's in the 1918 yes. area and so that's that's, that's, that's right. the one that caused so much death. Fort Missoula, because there was a training base here during the war, was the epicenter of the flu epidemic in oh, western, really? western Montana. Yeah. And that was something that, from my understanding, and, and I don't know what all you know on it, hopefully you can in, uh, give me some information, but from what I understand, uh, the 1918 flu was brought back from Europe somehow or another and first really telegraphed itself here in the United States amongst the military yeah. forces. Um, not sure of the story of the transmission back from Europe. We know the epicenter for the country was, I believe, uh, either Fort Riley or Fort Leavenworth in yep. Kansas. In and Kansas. spread outward okay. from there. I was but, thinking uh, Ohio, but... Definitely, yeah. Uh, yeah, the fact you had so and many that's... men being moved around in close quarters, that was really a generator for the influenza. Yeah. Right. And that, that was the major one. That one yeah. was really, really bad. Uh, yes, yes. And, uh, that was what goes around comes around. <laughs> <laughs> so we pick up with the opening of World War II right here, 1939, uh, invasion of Poland, Blitzkrieg in the West, Battle of Britain. This case are some of the better items brought back by... Uh, Western Montana GIs, uh, German items they recovered okay. in, uh, over, overseas. 
Um, and we try to, uh, since we're at, since we're at the point where, uh, what, what every generation, this happens with every generation, what are familiar headlines to one generation, uh, Guadalcanal, Iwo Jima, our history book footnotes. Right. <laughs> current. So we try to remedy that by giving a sampling of the immensity of the events that went on, giving just a taste of, uh, everything that goes on during World War II, so that younger people especially can pick up some context on it and come away with an understanding. So we have uh, 1941, invasion of the USSR, Pearl Harbor, Midway, and Coral Sea naval battles, 1942, Stalingrad. We try to give a taste of all these individual events. Okay. Uh, with an artifact or a model or something like that. And then we cover the rest of the war, continues over here. We get into 1943, invasion of Italy. We have our home front case right here. I was talking about internment earlier. We have a wooden bocce ball used by the Italian internees here. Okay, no, I thought that was a cannonball. No, it's about no. the same size. If you're hard stuff. up, it might be a cannonball. But it's made out of wood. Wooden bocce ball. And then the artwork here was done by Japanese internees during okay. the, while they were Japanese national internees. And we've got more home front items uh, here. Uh, some of our better recovered items from the Pacific Theater here. Um, I've seen only really one good collection of uh, Japanese recovered items from the Pacific War. The stuff from there was tougher to get back and a lot of it just fell apart due to climate. But we've got a Japanese helmet. Uh, prayer flags, uh, Japanese bayonets, and so forth. Wow. Bugle. And get into the end of the war, 1945, the final campaigns covered here. We've got a sampling of World War II uh, weaponry in this case here. Now you've got bolt action uh, yeah. rifles in here for World War II. So th these are Japanese, though. One, uh, the back one is uh, German. The front one is Japanese. Okay, okay. Yeah. I was going to say, I, I've seen several of these Japanese pieces that look just like that. Sure. So that's way cool. You got them with the bayonets, and you got the 911 mm -hmm. over here, and the U.S. carbine. Mm-hmm. And what's this? This is a hand grenade. Is is that correct? It's um, just some uh, sh some bro some shell shrapnel that fell apart. I, that was brought back to us by one of our uh, early trustees, John Moe, who was an internment guard here at the camp and was also in the Navy in the Pacific Theater. He brought that in one day. I'm not sure of the provenance of which. It uh, looks like one of those yeah. hand-thrown grenades or whatever uh, um, with a handle on it or something, but it's that broke be. open with some stuff inside. Yeah, that could be. <laughs> Interesting. Certainly. And we've got our exhibit on uh, American women in World War II here covering home front factory workers, uh, Women, uh, women home front pilots during the war, women marines, wax waves, uh, coast guard women. Now, what are the waves? Uh, I've heard of the wax. The the equivalent in the navy. Okay, okay. Women accepted for voluntary emergency service in the navy. One hundred thousand women joined the navy during World War II. Wow. And then they were they were put to work in the factories and everything back home too. Women yes. were, women were really yeah. 
involved in the yeah. in the war effort at that yeah, that's point. That's right. Time. We've got the iconic Rosie the Riveter poster right there. That's uh, comes comes out of that period. Right. Yeah, lots of women went to work. That is that is really cool. Okay. And then we come back into this back room. And I'm immediately staring as I walk through the door down the barrel of a cannon. <laughs> well, this is a model of one assembled by uh, one of our former trustees, now deceased, Kermit Edmonds. He was a high school teacher and also a park ranger in the summers at a number of Western military sites, uh, Fort Laramie, uh, Big Hole, and places like that. And he, in his spare time, he crafted this model of a six-pounder that would have been used on the American frontier, and he assembled it in his high school classroom and kept it in there at Hellgate High School here locally for really? many years, bequeathed it to us. Now you say it's a model, but it looks like it could fire. Uh, this one I haven't attempted, nor am I likely to. <laughs> <laughs> I'll accept that answer. All right. So in this room, we try to cover the American military experience in the frontier from the 1790s up through the 1890s as, as best you can in a relatively small room. We right. start out with the Ohio Valley Indian Wars in the 1790s and then get to when the U.S. Army gets to Montana and the personages of the Lewis and Clark Expedition, 1804 through 1806, and they pass through the Missoula Valley here. And they were pretty well accepted by the natives at the yeah, time. Lewis and, Lewis and Clark didn't have that big of a, I mean, there were some, some situations where they were running from what I understand, but for the most yeah. part, they got along pretty well with everybody. For the most part, it's a diplomatic uh, right. expedition. The uh, two near, near, cla the two clash, near clashes and clashes come when they're heading up the Missouri in 18, uh, 1804. And um, they uh, have a confrontation with uh, Teton Sioux on the Missouri, which uh, comes to a stare down, but doesn't erupt into violence. Then Lewis is trying to uh, discover on the way back, Lewis and a couple of men are trying to discover just where the U.S.-Canadian border is, uh, is and they go up the... Uh, on the Blackfeet, uh, what is now the Blackfeet Reservation, east of Glacier National Park, and they have a they have a confrontation with some uh, young Blackfeet who are trying to steal their horses. There's fatalities, and they have to head out of Blackfoot country and down the Missouri River very quickly. Right. To, uh, but the the, the fatalities weren't on the Lewis and Clark side. I think they only no, lost on, two guys on that whole two-year expedition, on, which only is just one, and that was to, uh, I believe. Uh, Appendicitis or an intestinal disorder. Sergeant Floyd, right. he's buried in a, on, the, on a bluff in Iowa today overlooking the Missouri. Okay. And now they came through Missoula because they went over Lolo Pass, correct? Yes. Uh, on the outbound route, they come up the Bitterroot Valley and they stop at Lolo, Traveler's Rest, which is now Traveler's Rest State Park, cover, which uh, preserves their campsite. And they headed, uh, didn't get to Missoula on that leg. They headed over the Bitterroot. Headed over, headed over Lolo Pass into Idaho. On the return route, they come back and they divide at Traveler's Rest when they get back over the uh, mountains from Idaho. Louis, um, Clark goes south, retraces their steps, and his, his job is to explore the Yellowstone River Valley. That's where right. Clark goes, and that's when he gets to Pompey's Pillar. 
Lewis uh, takes his people and they head north and over present-day U.S. 200 into the Great Falls area. Right. And they go back that he makes his excursion up the Marias River to uh, find out where the U.S.-Canadian border is, has his scuffle with the Blackfeet, and then he heads back down and back down the Missouri, and they join where the Yellowstone and the Missouri meet. And then they go back the rest of the way together down the, down the Missouri. Now, does that amaze you? that they were able to meet at a certain point when they've taken two completely different routes, no telephone, no walkie-talkies, no. no way to to figure this out, and three months later or six months, I don't know how long it took them to do yeah. all the walking around that they yeah. did, and then they meet up again at a certain point. Yeah, well, it's a fair, <laughs> it just boggles my a, mind. It's a fairly well-defined point, but again, it requires an awful lot of reliance. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and if you're there two weeks early, are you going, yeah, did they already leave, or do yeah. we wait another two weeks? Yes, yes, it's just so. that, that whole concept just is beyond my comprehension. Indeed. Indeed. But not only that, I've driven over Lolo Pass two or three times, yeah. And in a car, that pass takes forever. It's a four or five hour drive over Lolo Pass. Yes. And I know that Lewis and Clark almost died on that section of the journey. They got caught by the snows early when they yeah. went westward. <laughs> and and just just thinking about trying to take that, that whole pass in the middle of winter. In fact, I think they were told by the Indians or the natives that uh, yeah. that wasn't a wise idea and they did it anyway. Yes, yes. Press on. <laughs> and, it, you know, the thing that had to have been a real big surprise is two years later when they got back to Washington mm -hmm. and showed up and gave their presentation to Jefferson because he had no idea. Once they were gone, they were gone for two years. Yeah. <laughs> Just the, the waiting game seems so interesting to me. Yes, they had to be patient. <laughs> so we cover the... Uh, Westward experience here, uh, events east of the Mississippi, pretty much the Seminole War, the Alamo-Mexican War, Trail of Tears, and then we uh, pick up the story in Montana again. The U.S. Army gets to Montana in force in 1866 and 1870 after the Civil War, and there, there's the Bozeman Trail conflict. Uh, near present-day Billings and um, other events going on, and Fort Missoula arrives. As a, as a result of a confluence of uh, needs and events in 1877. That's when Fort Missoula okay. was established, 1877. So more on the national story here. We've got a fairly good collection of artifacts from Fort Sanders, Wyoming, of period artifacts from... Uh, Fort Sanders, Wyoming? Yeah. Which Where was, was that? Um, here's a... Being from Wyoming, I thought I knew my Wyoming history pretty well. Uh, act, active, active only a few years. It's basically on the Oregon Trail route, if you can look okay. at this 19th century map here. Right. But, um, it was, a. So it's kind of over more by Jackson someplace. Um, um, there you see Nebraska on the right. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. I'm not. I map, yeah. Right. Okay. So more over by where Fort Laramie was. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So. Yeah, they had several forts on that yeah. route. Sure. And then you've got some cannonballs that look a lot like that wooden ball we just the, looked at. These were brought back from the Panama Canal Zone by Colonel Joe Golden. Okay. Uh, Golden was an officer here in the 1930s. Uh, was stationed in the Panama Canal Zone. These are Spanish cannonballs he picked up back there. He came back to Missoula to retire, and these found their 
their way. I he was gone before I started the job, but these found their way into our collection right here. Okay. Yeah, and here's a picture of uh, Chief Charlo right here, Louis. Okay. PFC Louis Charlo's great great grandfather. Right. So. And again, covering the military experience in Montana. Um, 1876, 77 is the peak of U.S. Army activity during the frontier period in Montana. Back to back, we have the Little Bighorn Campaign and the Nez Perce War of 1877, 1876, 77. We work very closely with the Nez Perce National Historic Trail, okay. which uh, covers the flight of the Nez Perce 18, in 1877, and they have a very good auto tour you can take mapped out with full color guides and everything you can take from the Wallowa Valley in Oregon up to the Bears Paw Battlefield in uh, north central Montana. Okay. Fort Missoula by accident they are putting Fort Missoula together entirely unintended when the Nez Perce War breaks out uh, Fort Missoula troops fight at the uh, are present at the Fort Fizzle encounter in, a, in uh, summer of 1877, then they go on to fight in the area's largest uh, uh, battle of the Indian Wars, the Battle of the Big Hole, 125 miles south of here in August 1877. Okay. And so was that down by Darby? South of, southwest of Darby. Southwest you have, you have of to Darby, go over the, okay. You have to go over the pass into, okay. the, into, the, into the Wisdom area. Okay. And you've got several uh, uniforms from, from that time period? Uh, replicas. These are Ordnance Department uniforms, again, provided okay. to us by Kermit Edmonds. And a, and a picture of General Custer. Yeah, you can't talk about military history in Montana without, without Oh, yeah. No, can't, no. can't do that one. Oh, no. And then you... We've got uh, a number of uh, photographs. Uh, interestingly, Fort Keogh, Montana, east of here, near Miles City, in Miles City. Uh, they actually had a post photographer for a time. Uh, they had two, two, two of them who worked, who were just given some space on Fort to open up a photography studio. Oh, wow. One of them was uh, Christian Barthelmus, who took these pictures down here. Another was L.A. Huffman. And these are color retinted pictures from the 1900s. And the interesting, about, interesting thing about L.A. Huffman is he got to Montana just in time to photograph some of the Native American participants in the Little Bighorn battle. Oh, so really? You see them right here. Okay. That is cool. And you've got a, a big camera set up that would have been like you'd yes. see back at that period of time. Yes. I was just looking up photography uh, not long ago, and I think the first photographic picture was taken in 1825. Yes. And so it, it hadn't developed a whole lot in the 30 or 40 years before uh, the Civil War broke out, but they were able to record a lot of the Civil War through photographs. Oh, very much so. This is a studio uh, camera, camera right here. Right. This, this was the iPhone camera of the 1800s. <laughs> right Doesn't fit in your back pocket, does it? No, no. You need a complete buckboard wagon for this. <laughs> so. Those are some cool pictures. I like the way that they that they recolor. I, I don't really understand how they get the colors exact. That, yeah, but, uh, these were taken in the uh, 1890s, and then by, by about World War One, he'd hit upon some color retinting technique to. Uh, that's cool. Put them, put put those together. That is that is really neat. Most of what we acquire here are through veterans and their families. Okay. Right here and. 
uh, in the early 2000s, I was getting lots and lots of material from World War II veterans or their widows who were clean, right. cleaning out the house, going into the senior home, and asked if I can come pick up the box of this and box of that. And, uh, not so much of that anymore, but now we're heading to the point where um, Middle Eastern veterans are <laughs> starting to look at. Uh, I was going to say there aren't a lot things. of the World War Two veterans left. Is there any World that's, War One that, left? That's, that's been a constant ever since the nineteen nineties. Yeah, yeah. We, we the made, World War Ones have pretty much world, all. World last World War One veteran died about uh, two years before the centennial. Frank Buckles of West okay. Virginia. Yeah. Okay. But um, again, uh, we're starting to get a trickle of things in from the Middle East. We have a number of Desert Storm items here, and also uh, some items uh, brought back from Iraq and Afghanistan right there. We've got a, a high-altitude, low-opening jumper tra trainee from the uh, 1990s okay. right, right, right here in this, in this mannequin display. And you've got a mannequin with... Uh, how do you even move with that much... Uh, compartments and everything else all wrapped around you. He's got his, his harness on with, with ammo containers and, and supply containers well, in the if front. You're, and, if you're parachuting, gravity helps. <laughs> well, I guess it does. He, you don't have to worry about carrying it for about 30 seconds. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> right. And then you've got, again, some helmets and knives. These are items and, from these uh, are, Fort Missoula in the 50s and 60s. I was going to say, these, 60s, are, these right are older here. than your... Yes. your yeah. Uh, Middle Eastern War. Yes, this is uh, from the Vietnam period, actually. Okay. And we've got uh, more Fort Missoula 20th century items here. We've got a silver cup given to a uh, West Point officer who was here in the 1920s, uh, some period China. And more on the Civilian Conservation Corps and the, the heyday of, again, the heyday of Fort Missoula. You got an old tractor model in here and, yeah. a, and a pick axe. A, a Pulaski is what it's called. It's a combination uh, shovel and pickaxe. Okay. It was uh, this particular design was uh, put together by a forest ranger named Ed Pulaski, who was famous for surviving the big uh, forest fire of 1910 here. Oh, and, okay. And several different little ads and articles and some of that kind yes, of stuff in here. Yes, uh, from the Green Guidance. The Green Guidance was the newsletter that was published by the Civilian Conservation Corps in this oh, really? building, the, the newspaper of the Fort Missoula District. And today our new, our military museum newsletter is also called the Green Guidon. Okay. So. And then you've got a model case with uh, the oh. different airplanes, different uh, amphibious vehicles, yeah. uh, tanks, just kind of everything. Uh, again, looks like it covers kind of the whole spectrum of... Uh, of air and, and tank uh, battle. We, we get models. I recently took in a nice collection of Great Falls of about uh, 300 some. Oh geez, you're gonna have to build a few more cases. Indeed, never ends. <laughs> At what point in time do you gotta build a new facility? Cause this one is packed. Oh, well, we're working on that too. <laughs> okay. So. so so, Asian wars covered in here, Korea, 1950 through the end of Vietnam, 1975. So, we've got uh, Korean uh, war items in here. Uh, it's the first use of U.S. jet aircraft, so we've got some uh, jet models in here and also okay. some, some equipment used at the, uh, uh, by, uh, by the um, 
U.S. forces in Korea. You've got a little piece of wire from the Korean DMZ right there. A pair of Mickey Mouse boots. Yes. yes Those are supposedly the warmest boots you can buy. Um, hard to believe. That's a, <laughs> basically they're just rubber. You got actually the white one. ones. I think are the ones that everybody oh, yeah. kind of wants. With the, the, they were the Air Force ones with the little air knobs yeah. on the side. We've got an M7 self-propelled howitzer displayed out in front of the museum. Here's a picture of how it was used in Korea. Okay. Right, right, right here. And again, more on the Korean War and uh, birth of the U.S. Air Force uh, late 1940s and Korea, the first war fought by the Air Force as an independent service that's co covered here. And we wrap around into the opening of uh, U.S. involvement of Viet in Vietnam, 1950s, 1960s. And again, you've got a lot of uniforms, you've got a lot of communications equipment. What is, is that a parachute? That, that, is, a, that is another halo jumper there, high altitude, low opening, and that is a special operations group soldier, as he would have appeared, ready to jump in the night, about 1970-71. We have a local man who is very interested in the history of special operations group in Vietnam, and these were soldiers who jumped far behind enemy lines in Laos and uh, North Vietnam to report back, and this is what uh, one of them would have looked like. And, and at what altitude did they release their chute, do you know? Oh, I, that's... Don't worry about it. <laughs> you don't need to try uh, and read. If, but... if, if Mr. If Mr. Charters was here, he'd be, he could tell you in a second. <laughs> but they were jumping out at a high altitude, high altitude being 6,000 feet straight, or 7,000 Straight down feet. and then low low opening so you're not visible. So it's it basically infiltration parachuting. And this parachute that he's got on the front of him has the altimeter so yes. that he knows exactly where he's at when he's when yeah. he's deploying. And I guess they're pro he didn't need a, a backup chute because... When you de when you deploy your chute that low, you don't have time to worry about it. I'm not sure. We may just not have been able to fit the fit the backup in the in there in this okay. particular mannequin. But uh, well, I, I, I don't know. I'm just guessing. Unfortunately, that... Mr. Charters isn't here today. He can give you a full encyclopedia of uh, on the Sog Halo guys. <laughs> And then you've got some communication. That must have been a communication yeah. outfit out of a helicopter. Yeah, or? 1950s, 60s. And, uh, and you've got some torpedoes or, or missiles and helmets. Again, some more artillery. Mm -hmm. Very nice. I, I, I like all the items that you have in here. You could spend days just looking at each individual that, item. That is the idea. It, <laughs> so. And we've got Western Montana during Vietnam covered here. This is always a matter of interest. We've got a number of pictures of relatively young people in the 50s and 60s, and now Grandpa and Grandma can come in and see themselves as right. they were back then. Well, so. there again, you know, the, the guys that served in the Korean War, they're getting, well, even yeah. the Vietnam War, you're pushing 75, 80 years sure. old now. Sure, yeah, that's a constant. So. And we've got a uh, recent donation. We've got a Montagnard rifle from the Vietnamese Central Highlands that was brought back, donated to us from the uh, Hill tribes in South Vietnam who uh, aided the special forces in trying to interdict the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I don't so. think I'd want to pull the trigger on that thing. No, I have no intent. <laughs> this this <laughs> is displayed in a really nice case with some of the local tapestry in the background. But this looks, it's got a pistol grip on it. 
almost looks like a pistol attached to a pipe is, is kind of the way yeah. I'd describe it, but when the total length on it is probably three and a half, four foot long. When the special forces first encountered the mountain yards in South Vietnam, this is what they were using, and uh, special forces got them uh, better, better equipped to take on the Viet Cong, North Vietnamese in their, in their area. And what was the firing mechanism on this? I it, have it, no idea. It's really bizarre <laughs> when you look at how it's all set up. Yeah. Wow. And then in this case, you've got some field packs and helmets again, uh, grenade carriers, just uh, a whole bunch of different items. Yeah. And then you've got some life boot. Uh, We've got a uh, friend of ours who's a lieutenant commander, Naval Reserve, who's stationed in D.C., who combs the uh, waterfront for us, at okay. the, uh, looking for uh, maritime artifacts. And he has sent us uh, these right here. We've got a life ring from a Liberty, World War II Liberty ship, which was pressed into service for use in Vietnam. This is from a National Oceanic Atmospheric Acronym, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. Okay. NOAA. NOAA, Noah okay. Uh, apologies to anybody from NOAA listening. I'm missing something in there. <laughs> right um, he was on, our friend was on a ship that went to study the oil spill in the Persian Gulf in 1991 after the war. Okay. Saddam Hussein's last ditch oil spill. The ship was named the Mount Mitchell. And this was a life ring from the from the ship right here. Now, did he find this other one on the beach? You said no, it was a beachcomber. No, no, the, he goes to maritime uh, used maritime. Oh, okay, shops okay, okay, okay. And, okay. and he also got us two bells from uh, supply ships used during the Persian Gulf War. U.S. Navy supply ships wow. from the U.N.S. The Arabian Sea and the Sea Lift Atlantic. So that's why these fellows are so far inland right here. And they're, they're both brass. Yes, yes. They probably sound really good. Oh, well, we've got, uh, when we need a, an active bell, we've got uh, one of the bells from the last Milwaukee Road engines to pass through Missoula. That's on display in the front, in the oh, front really? gallery there. Wow. Happy to ring it for you if you need a sound effect. Oh, I might need it. <laughs> Actually, it would probably be cool. Covering the end of the Vietnam U.S. War, U.S. withdrawal, 1975, and uh, air, air and uh, naval artifacts from local veterans who brought them in. So, That's cool. So. <clears throat> and we've got our media media mentions on this wall. We made the Wall Street Journal one time. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. So. <laughs> And one more gallery in this building. Apologies to your listener, your listeners, like Mark Twain said, who visited Fort Missoula in 1897. Well, oh, it's a terrible fate to be talked to death. <laughs> so, I think I think I'm learning a lot from this. There's so much information I I was not aware of. Right. This well, this uh, room, we cover the Imperial Era, which is everything between the Indian War, end of the Indian Wars, and the beginning of World War I, so Spanish-American War period. And Fort Missoula is very active with its own unique stories during that time as well. Now, was Missoula uh, part of uh, Spain at one point in time? I know that Wyoming had several different uh, occupations. Oh. I mean, we had the Spanish, we had the French. Yeah. We had uh, 
Mexican and the United States. I mean, there was several different, uh, uh, I don't want to say occupiers, but under several different jurisdictions. Okay. I don't know if, if it came this far north or not. Uh, no, no Spanish ever in here. Most of Montana comes with the Louisiana Purchase, which is owned by right. Spain for a time. Uh, then uh, Spain makes a vague claim to the Pacific Northwest, which includes the Missoula area back in the 18th century, and a firmer claim is put together by Britain when they uh, get a Royal Navy ship up to uh, Puget Sound and lay, okay. cl lay claim to what will become British Columbia right. back in the 18th century. But uh, the, um, uh, there's no Euro-American presence that we know of until Lewis and Clark get here <coughs> okay. in the 1804-1806. Uh, 1806. So uh, Fort Missoula is fully active in the 1890s, and what we have in 1888 is a uh, African-American unit, which is sent to garrison Fort, Fort Missoula, the 20, oh, really? 25th Infantry. And were they uh, referred to as the Buffalo Soldier Soldiers yes, at that yes. point? Yes, and okay. we, just, we just had a major event commemorating the Buffalo Soldiers this last spring here. And really? Yeah. So uh, they are here, uh, some items. We have a Buffalo Soldiers uh, mint condition helmet from the 25th Infantry right here. And uh, they uh, gained quite a, quite a good deal of uh, acceptance with the local community. They've got a baseball team, they've got a band, and so uh, when they leave uh, for the Spanish-American War in 1897, there's a huge parade downtown. <laughs> 1898, there's a huge parade downtown to send them off. So, wow. quite an interesting story there. But uh, most interesting is the fact that in 1897, uh, one of their officers, James Moss, uh, wanted to get ahead in the army, and it's a time of relative peace. Uh, there's no... Uh, further Indian wars going on in the area. So he puts together what's known as the Bicycle Corps. The Bicycle Corps. About 25 <laughs> to 30 guys who are used spalding bicycles, and Moss has the idea we can uh, eliminate a lot of the need for the horse if we use these things. So right. he, he takes his men on uh, extended trips to the Mission Valley, uh, Yellowstone National Park, and then he makes a big a big one all the way from Missoula to St. Louis, Missouri in 1897. On bicycle. So it's covered in all national media, St. Wow. Louis papers, Missoulian sends a correspondent along, and um, it's considered quite a feat that he moves 30 men by Missoula all the way through bicycle in an era when the roads really aren't that good, and he has to spend a lot of his time riding on the railroad right of way to uh, get there. That so, had to have been a little bit bumpy going over all the ties. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> these were tough tough guys. So uh, the uh, experiment works, but at uh, the same, uh, the car, the internal combustion engine's coming along pretty fast, and that kind of overwhelms the need for the, the bicycle in the U.S. Army. The, but, the, you know, I've, I've also seen, I went to a bicycle museum in uh, Pennsylvania that's an unbelievable museum, just a little plug for them, but uh, they had paratrooper bicycles that would fold up and the paratroopers would jump out with their bicycles and then be able to cruise yeah. around. So they're still using bicycles. Those, those are probably British. And uh, I think they were American. Was he? Okay. I could, I, I could be wrong, but okay. I'm, I'm pretty sure that there were yeah. that there were bicycles okay. that were going with the with the paratroopers, U.S. military. Oh. We'd have to look that up, I guess. Yeah, Google I'm, might I'm, have. I'm something. familiar with Operation Market Garden, 
uh, Battle of Arnhem, 1944, um, the uh, British uh, six. Um, British airborne forces uh, tended to bring them along a lot. So, okay, so well, I, I could be a hundred percent wrong. I knew that they were they, they were painted military <laughs> green, and they said sure. that they were used could, as paratroopers. Could be bodies. a U.S. experiment. I, I can't verify. I've ever seen any pictures of any which were taken over to Europe or anywhere okay. else by American airborne forces, but could, could be it was an experiment that got going for a while. <laughs> so, well, that's that's really interesting, and he's got a picture up here of this bicycle core. It looks like they're at Mammoth Hot Springs in Yellowstone yes, Park. that's correct. And the Buffalo Soldiers are all holding onto their bikes, all decked out with uh, packs, on, uh, packs on the front, uh, in front of the handlebars, and it uh, looks like packs hanging down from the center bar. And there's uh, about eight guys standing in different levels there at the, at the Mammoth Hot Springs. It's a pretty cool picture. And then you've got a picture over here of a plane that looks a lot like the Wright Brothers plane landing on a ship. Was Did they have aircraft carriers back in World War One? This was the first attempt to uh, fly an aircraft off of a U.S. Navy ship in 1910. Eugene Ely, uh, this is a, um, he used what's called a Curtis Pusher. Okay. He manages to fly off um, the U.S. Earlier, he was able to fly off the USS Pencil, USS Birmingham, and in 1911, he manages to make a landing on on the converted uh, con, uh, converted battleship USS okay. Pennsylvania. Wow! <laughs> so using this. Uh, homemade flight deck, but that's the beginning of U.S. naval aviation, 1910, 1911. Yeah, and and Wright Brothers flew in 1903, so this would have been very early. Relatively And Curtis was kind of the main competitor with the Wright Corporation that was creating planes at the time. Correct. In fact, I was at a museum, and they said that, uh, that Curtis had to pay patent rights on every plane that they made to the Wright brothers because they had the patent on the airplane, which was just kind of mind-boggling too. Ka-ching, ka-ching, <laughs> yes. <laughs> but the local connection is in June 1911, uh, Eugene Ely comes to Missoula, brings in one of his Curtis pushers by train, and the Army agrees to uh, do a demonstration here at Fort Missoula of, really? his, of, his, of his plane. And they clear a landing field for him in front of Officer's Row here at the uh-huh. fort. And Curtis uh, Ely brings his plane in and spends uh, June 28th taking off and landing from the Fort Missoula Parade Ground. Well, that's, that's cool. That's a model of the, of the type he used. And that's kind of a tri-wing uh, yeah. plane. That's right. And when he says it's a pusher, that means that the prop is behind yes. the, the cockpit instead of in front. Correct. Yeah. Right. And so that was the beginnings of aviation in western Montana when Eugene Ely brought his uh, plane. So covering the Spanish-American War right here, um, Montana sends, uh, for the first time, sends an organized unit uh, fight uh, in, with U.S. forces in the Spanish-American War, Montana Militia Unit. Uh, they get all the way to Georgia. They're not needed, but they get to Georgia at the height of the malaria season. A lot of them get sick before they get back to Missoula. Uh-oh. So, and in this but, display, you've got a, a set of riding boots. Yeah. 
uh, with a chain coming across the top of them, kind of ornamental. Yeah. You've got a McClellan saddle. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, a couple of uniforms again, a set of saddlebags. Yeah. 1890s period. Right. Yeah. Very nice. So that, you got another McClellan saddle over here and a, a, and a pack saddle. One. Yeah, and we talk about these. Uh, Western Montana is big packing country due to people taking uh, horse and mule trains into the wilderness area. Right. And also the Forest Service uses them a lot for maintenance in the back country. So we talk about the uh, development of uh, horse and mule packing in uh, Western Montana in here and its military applications which were taken after the uh, frontier period into the imperial age right here. Okay. So, and we're covering, uh, continuing Whoa. the imperial age, we're covering the uh, Philippine insurrection. We've got some uh, native built, uh, which is the postscript to the Spanish-American War. The, uh, the Philippine insurrection took longer than the Spanish-American War did. A lot of uh, American action, a lot of fatalities into the Philippines from 19, uh, 1900 to 1904. Really? So, and, and we were sending troops over to the Philippines at that time? Because I, I know that we were occupying the Philippines yeah. during World War II. Yes. And then we lost it during World yes. War II, and then we regained it, correct? Yeah. This was the preliminary. This, the Philippines were the Army's main preoccupation during the first years of Teddy Roosevelt's administration right here. We've got some homemade Philippine insurgent weapons right here. This is really cool. Mm -hmm. Because he's got a homemade rifle, a homemade pistol, a spear, and a sword, along with a couple of helmets, and also some uh, markmanship awards from 1900 that are little round medallions. Mm -hmm. I guess I don't know much at all about that that uh, Philippine uh, yeah Philippine insurrection on the yeah. sign there, 1898-1902. Yeah, that's, was, that's uh, interesting. It was kind of a preview of Vietnam. It was okay. a very difficult tropical campaign, and there were lots and lots. Who of were we fighting? The Filipinos. Oh, <laughs> they they said thank you very much for uh, making the Spanish go away, and uh, we'll take things from here. And we said uh, no, we're going to stick around for it. Okay. So there was a uh, a lot of atrocity, a lot of fatalities. Uh, a lot of non-combatants getting killed. Uh, it's over by 1902, but after the Iron Fist comes the Velvet Glove, and uh, the um, from 1902 up to World War II, the U.S. Uh, plows a lot of money into in Philippine internal improvements and uh, okay. building infrastructure and so forth. So it's a mixed bag <laughs> if you look at it. But uh, and buying shoes for Amilda. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that that came, that came, that came later, right? <laughs> so. And then we get into the Boxer Rebellion, 1900s, uh, U.S. forces deployed to China to uh, relieve the uh, siege of the diplomatic legations in China during uh, 1900. Uh, if you ever want to slog through the Charlton Heston movie, uh, 50, 55 Days at Peking, that documents okay. it uh, pretty well as, as Charlton Heston best can, of course. Right. And <laughs> so... Huh. We've got things from this period here, and uh, also I didn't realize the, we were in China then either. Oh yes, yes. Uh, there was a big diplomatic section in China at the time. At the time, uh, the Western powers were forcing what was known as the open door policy on China: no restriction on trade, and uh, we're going to come in and set up our own. Uh, 
foreign areas not subject to your laws and basically it's a inf it's a way of exerting informal <laughs> empire right. so we're, and these these diplomatic legations are big they have thousands of troops in them are designed to accommodate thousands of troops and uh, we're very strict they say you know you can't enforce chinese law on western nationals and so this uh, Irritates the Chinese, of course, and uh, what are known as the Society of Righteous Fists, the Chinese boxers, we call them the boxers uh -huh. in Western parlance, uh, revolt in 1900 and attack the Western interests in, uh, in Peking. And uh, the, out, the Western countries, U.S., Austria, Brit Britain, France, Germany, Italy, Italy Japanese, uh, put together a relief force of 19,000 to march to Peking and uh, put down the Boxer Rebellion. And so that's uh, okay. about several months of uh, difficult fighting to get to Peking and finally uh, put down the Boxers, and the Boxers eventually uh, lose a lot of uh, tacit Chinese support and the re revolt dissipates. But uh, wow. that's a source of uh, some consternation among the present Chinese government. This all, this all happens. It's a very deeply ingrained historical memory. But huh. this case right here... Yelp, yelp, yelp. <laughs> <laughs> Please assure your listeners that's a museum dog. She's, she's not being mistreated. She just wants to come out and participate in the interview. She's a very fun-loving dog. Uh, the dog's got a tail that wags like crazy. Uh, yes, and, indeed. And just because of uh, uh, the piece of, of what we're doing, she's put in the office horribly mistreated oh, yes. having to stay in, in a plush office in a chair while we do our podcast yes indeed <laughs> we'll probably have probably have the aspca down on us tomorrow there you uh, go so. <laughs> all right well and so we have uh, period more u.s army period items from the uh, boxer rebellion and the mexican punitive expedition here uh, just to wrap up, the Mexican punitive expedition was the uh, chasing of Pancho Villa in, okay. in Mexico before World War One. Montana sent a cavalry unit to that oh, as, did they? as well. Yeah, 1916-1917, and it's also the uh, expedition where Georges Patton made his reputation as a soldier who really liked to mix it up. He was, okay. Uh, so. Um, more U.S. Army items, the most interesting probably is recently acquired the Merriam Pack right here, devised by a Civil War veteran who went on to design a number of Western military army posts, uh, General Henry C. Merriam. So he decided the Army needed a new pack. He put this design together. It came with two wooden slats holding it up, which you buckled into holders in the back of your belt. So okay. that's how you carried the back. Oh, and so your hips helped carry it. Supposedly, uh, soldiers didn't like it. They called it the murdering pack. Oh. <laughs> but he got some government contracts, and then 1898, several thousand were produced, and a lot of uh, militia units uh, bought them. This one was bought by the New York uh, 65th uh, Volunteers right here. Okay. So. Wow. And now you said you have several buildings outside. Well, we've got an 18, we've got one of the fort's two original buildings, the 1878 powder magazine, stone limestone powder magazine. We, okay. made, we run that too. And we've got a smaller building, also a CCC building, which uh, we tell the story. We have a Civil War gallery and we have a gallery on the CCC in the 1930s and that. Okay. So. Well, let's not worry about going and, and checking that out on this podcast. Only so many hours in the day. <laughs> that, that's pretty much it. 
And uh, this has been absolutely fantastic. I so appreciate your time, Tate. Well, thank you uh, for visiting. The us. information that I've learned today is just uh, is is unbelievable. I'm going to have to listen to this one two or three times just to keep myself up on things. Oh, uh, I like to. Uh, do you guys have a website? FortMissoula.org. FortMissoula.org. Do you have a Facebook page? We do daily updates on our Facebook page. Daily updates? We, we can get you can get to our Facebook page right off FortMissoula.org. Okay. And so wow, that's pretty good that you have daily updates. And that that's history updates or just uh Oh, museum, history, and just everything that happens around here we try to keep our visitorship and members informed of. Well that's cool. If you go on there right now, we put an interesting story. We uh, had to uh, exfiltrate a barn owl from our small building the other day that got trapped inside. <laughs> so we called in specialized help from a lady who runs an organization called Raptors of the Rockies, who okay. works with uh, eagles and hawks and all these kind of critters all the time. And she helped us get it out of the building and on its way to uh, further adventures. <laughs> cool. So, Yeah, well, I'll have to check that out also. Sure. And uh, I like to finish out my podcast by saying the world is full of wonder. People need to get out and explore. This museum here in Missoula is so packed full of stuff. Uh, it'll take you a while to explore all the, all the displays and to see everything. And everybody have an absolutely oh, wonderful two, two, day. 2975 General Foster Avenue, Missoula. Open seven days a week in the summertime and weekends in the fall and spring. Okay, that sounds good. And, it, and like I said, it's a nice museum. It's well worth the visit if you're coming through Missoula and you have any interest at all in any military history. Sure. Thanks a lot, Tate. Well, thank you again. And come see us again when you We can. will do that. All the rolling go, where am I to go? Meet Johnny, where am I to go? For I'm a young and a sailor lad, and where am I to go?